0: Our first episode of the St. Paul Filmcast is dedicated to Melissa and her podcast, The Book Reading Club. Her latest episode was about the Maltese Falcon, which she talked about my favorite book. Check it out, Book Reading Club. Now to our first episode. Nick I'm Dan and welcome to the first episode of the St. Paul Filmcast we want to extend a thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the podcast it was uh, kind of a long time getting this made long
1: time coming long time
0: coming (laughs) Uh we are a branch from the Nick Events podcast so um if you found us you probably know about the Nick Events podcast as well. Yeah. Um we want to send a lot of thank yous um to a lot of other podcasts to help uh get this noticed, get us started, get us recognized and oh, absolutely. we really do appreciate it. Um we also sent out a couple of anybody who a couple of remarks and we'll get those um up and going, but um yeah, you can find us on the Podbean app, Stitcher, uh, itunes and uh, google play so if you really like the this first episode please give us a review it helps out the show and absolutely uh, um dan and i wanted to do this podcast because we love talking about movies
1: all kinds of movies all kinds of movies yep
0: and to kick it off was like well i you know everybody talks about classical movies but i think they don't gravitate to what i think needs to be talked about when you talk about classical movies right what makes them important and essentially, sometimes these movies aren't our personal favorites, but we think we have to be talked about, discussed, and recognized as well.
1: Yeah, they cannot be ignored, yeah. as Glenn Close said in Fatal Attraction. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's, so um,
0: before we get started um, talking about, and everybody kind of knows, because I've been advertising, the first uh, one we're going to talk about is Gone with the Wind. Yes. Um, and I wanted to give out, um, because uh, I was going to give... Um, a little bit of recognition. Um, there's a famous uh, sports columnist here in Minnesota. His name is Patrick Roissy, mm-hmm. and he's been writing for sports. I don't want to give it out, but many, many years, even yeah. before even before I was born, he was doing a beat and uh, working in sports columns. And he's on the radio here at 1500 AM. And he, if you follow Patrick Royce as much as I do, mm-hmm. uh, you know that his other interest is movies he's yes. a movie fanatic just as much as i is so just as a kindly gesture i sent out a tweet tweeter uh i sent a tweet to him um hey we're starting up and i know dr strangelove is your favorite kind of you know yeah. start, <laughs> just give us a list that we could talk about that's be, right uh your favorite movies before we move on to and and he he did he responded it was so nice of him to respond he had to take his time away from sports and watching sports to talk about his favorite movies and
1: yeah, that's just great. And, in fact,
0: he, and actually he um, numbered him for us, which is nice for okay. us. Okay. And I, sh- I showed Dan before we started yeah, this. Yeah,
1: there's a hierarchy. Yeah,
0: so here's Patrick Royce's top 12 favorite movies. Um, number one is Dr. Strangelove.
1: I can see that. Yep. Yeah. Great I, Stanley Kubrick uh, satire.
0: And Stanley Kubrick will be back on this list, too. Uh, number two, I'm a little bit sorry. Taxi Driver.
1: Oh, Scorsese. Yep. Yeah.
0: Travis Bickle, which probably be one we will we have to talk about as well. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. maybe we should just cat group it all to Martin Scorsese or where we talk about the one movie. Um, The Big Lebowski.
1: Oh, Coen Brothers uh, right. cult status yeah. at this moment, you know.
0: That's com that's going to be like 25 years old. The other thing about Big Lebowski, that came out right after Fargo. It did. It did. And I don't think people were ready for that. They
1: didn't know how to take that film. And right. and it finally found it. Well, I'd say finally, but it slowly built an audience where now they have festivals and people right. just <laughs> celebrate that everything that is Lebowski mm-hmm. and the dude.
0: I, I have tried <laughs> it out. I have wore robe and drink right Russians. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a way of life. It's a way of life. Um, number four is one of my, it would probably be, if I had to make a list, uh, it would be mine, uh, North by Northwest.
1: Alfred Hitchcock, yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, number five, another one from uh, the Coen Brothers, No Country for Old Men.
1: Yeah, um, eerie film, yeah. very, very brooding.
0: You have to. I always say you have to have a good villain to have yep. a good movie. <laughs> That's a good villain. That's a good movie, and you have to have an interesting perspective, like does something new, and his new weapon of choice is very unique.
1: Yeah, no one has ever done that before. I
0: don't think so. <laughs> no. Um, here's Stanley Cooper Grand, number six, full metal jacket.
1: Oh, yeah, classic. Came out around a little bit after uh, Oliver Stone's Platoon and yeah. it was the big Vietnam film right after that. It's a little
0: schizophrenic. It's almost like two movies in one. It is, yeah, with uh,
1: yeah. scene in Paris Island with the yeah. uh, drill sergeant and then them actually in the, you know— In country.
0: I would say it's almost like two short films. Yeah. Because they're both different tones, different, yeah. all of a sudden the boot camp and then the war is very different. And it didn't get a lot of reviews because of that. I don't think everybody digested, it. I understand that maybe it's just two different films, much in different, yeah.
1: Especially after Platoon because uh, they were kind of used to that. Right. You know, it was one of the few Vietnam films that was popular, Platoon. And then Full Metal Jacket comes out. And it's a different tone. It's a different feeling. And right, and I
0: think it shows that it's a schizophrenic. It is intentional because on in his hat, remember, it says "Born to Kill," but he has the peace sign. And right, they talk about it. That is,
1: yeah, it's a strange dichotomy that's yeah. going on with the character. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, number seven, Blazing Saddles.
1: Oh, absolutely, a film you could not make right now. <laughs> no, <laughs> Bill but
0: Brooks. The, and everybody think Richard Pryor was one of the writers. Yes, he was. Yeah, in fact, he was supposed to be Cleavon Little. He's supposed to be the sheriff. But he has such a reputation.
1: And they, yeah. uh, they also wanted to get, I don't know if it was uh, base heart, but they wanted to get a, uh, um, an authentic uh, Western actor to play, uh, you, know, the, yeah. you know, the Waco yeah. kid. And I guess that they they had a problem with the with the fellow because he was an alcoholic, and they yeah.
0: let yeah. Gene Wilder do it. Do yeah. it, yeah. Couldn't do it again. Couldn't get Randolph Scott. <laughs>
1: Randolph Scott. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. That had to be done. I'm sorry, people.
0: <laughs> um, number eight is one of those. I don't know if anybody really knows about it, but if you've seen it, it's actually one of those under the radar comedies, Midnight Run with Robert De Niro.
1: Yeah, Robert yeah. De Niro and. Um, uh, Charles... Charles Grodin, who yeah. plays a very... hes he, Well, he's a, he plays a very Charles Grodin character. Well, he's I don't very, even
0: know if they get along... On, obviously, they don't get along on camera. Maybe it looks like they probably didn't get along <laughs> behind the camera. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh,
1: De Niro plays a very streetwise cop, yeah. and uh, Grodin is kind of like a flim-flam artist. Right. He, he's a bunco artist, but he's very mellow. He's the opposite of De Niro. And but they really had awesome chemistry in that film, right, right? Even though they couldn't stand each other, I can't
0: watch it again because it makes me want to start smoking again. <laughs> right. There's a lot. Uh, number nine, uh, Chinatown with Jack Nicholson.
1: Oh, oh uh, Roma Roman Polanski's Chinatown. If, if you look at it, it's very
0: balanced, symmetrically throughout the whole movie. Right. There's nothing, even with the people, how they stand and posturing, and it's very. Really balanced. This was annoyingly balanced movie. Even when they're in the bed together, how they're perfectly symmetrical.
1: Right. It yeah. um it was a bring back to the old noir films. Yeah, which uh, uh, was really great to see.
0: I, I I I, re- I realize now you want to you want to realize when somebody leaves, put a stopwatch under his tires. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's yeah.
0: true. Um, number 10 is one I rewatched again. It's one of those, if it, I don't intentionally watch it, but if it's on, I stop everything and watch it. L.A. Confidential.
1: Yeah. We'll talk about noir. Yeah. yeah. That is a perfect noir film. Uh, uh, one of the first times that I actually saw Russell Crowe, uh, and right. I thought he just did a brilliant job in that. Yeah. Um, it was. Uh, it, I thought it was uh, fantastic all the way around. Just a great show.
0: It's one of those that uh, even at the end, I thought it was not going to go the way it did, but did. Yeah, it just. I think Kim Basinger won an Oscar for it. Yep. Yep.
1: And yeah. uh, you have Kim Basinger actually bringing back an old um, style from uh, Victoria Lake from the '40s, with the hair draped down to. The one eye, yeah. so and,
0: it's one of those that works as a rental and going to theaters. So, it is yep. uh, number eleven. Is we already talked about it? Is very uh, Barry Lyndon, very underrated film.
1: V- I'm I'm yeah. surprised it's on there because not many people. Okay. You know some some people think it's meticulous, other people think it's plotting. I think it's meticulous. <laughs> yeah. It's I think one of the most beautiful films ever made.
0: And we talked about how shooting real life candles and shooting film. It's very hard to do. Very, right. Tedious work. At one angle, you're gonna get a flare, and everything goes off. And how they did it, it was and marvelous. I
1: know, and it went over budget. But uh, uh, Kubrick had a vision, and I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again: that every, every frame in that film could be a painting in the Louvre. It's absolutely wonderful.
0: It's actually yes. It's very stunning. It's one of those you have to. If you can't, you don't have to watch the full film, but you're gonna to have to watch snippets. Um, if you do film class, film study, arts and films, and a photography, right. you're going to have to be watching
1: not one of his well known though it's no. it, you know people talk about you know Paths of Glory or they'll talk about Spartacus but you know nobody or you know, rarely will they bring up Barry Lyndon that's a real shame
0: so before we begin we have a lot of thank yous and we uh, let me get through the thank yous before we go get on to Gone with the Wind because Absolutely. a lot of people that help support us and get us announced before we even launch yeah. I, nice.
1: I won't be like Bill Conti here and start up the orchestra if you're too slow <laughs> so, so.
0: Um, the people who are following us now and retweet the message that we're going to be starting today uh, thank you again and these are the people that help us out. Um, podcast Two Girls on the Bench. Ah. Uh, podcast The IMDb Journey Podcast. Uh, the Soul Wizard Podcast. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, the Blunder Dogs Podcast. That sounds kind of funny. Nice. Um, the very famous Jake and Tom Conquer the World. They've been around for many times. They're wonderful help to podcasters. Um, the Polar Pod Podcast. Uh, Ice in the Face Podcast. Uh, we have Billy D's. Billy D's helps us out all the time. Uh, the very eerie scientific transmission podcast, or oh. uh, oh, the secret pod, secret transmission podcast. I'm sorry. it's not the mm. secret transmission podcast. I get that right. Um, Another one of the good friends of ours, Christian and Damon's amazing nerd show. Yep. That's, <laughs> uh, we have uh, thinking critically podcast. We also have laughing lunchadores podcast. We have the American Gods podcast. Mm. That's a, one of my favorites. Uh, fans on patrol. The Awesome Sunday Show. Um, classic Movie must. That kind of sounds yeah. like we're right up early. The, uh, the Nice Guys at Movie Mayhem. Oh, great. Uh, the Weird Science DC. They talk about weird science comics in DC. <laughs> um, Very cool. Yes. Um, the Mike Siebert Radio Show. Mike is, kudos to him. He helps us out all the time. Um, the Man, Brian, Man Brain Podcast. Um, the Film mm-hmm. Rolls. Those girls from Seattle who like to talk film. film right. roles. Uh, the Flicks for Kicks. The Flicks for Kicks. This is one of my favorite titles of podcast, the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. Oh, yes. For somebody that grew as a child in the 70s, you, yep. you know exactly. It does have that flavor, Kung it Fu Drive-In. Um, Paula Wayne from the Countdown Podcast from Australia, um, the Mockers Podcast. Uh, something we always do, Dan, the mm-hmm. Drift and Ramble Podcast. Yeah,
1: that's true. We're, we're masters <laughs> at rambling. <laughs>
0: the Mixed Metaphors, um, uh, Andy and Gerald from Two Peas on a Pod. And we have uh, the Heroes Garage, Pittsburgh Nerd Podcast, Hypothetically Great Podcast, The Release of Crowns Podcast, The 30 Something Mm -hmm. Podcast, Mike Marlowe's Podcast, Gravity Beard Podcast. What are we doing? The Frankenpot Podcast. uh, Morgan from Australia. She talks about all the Gothic literature. That's right. Um, The Fellowship of the Geeks Podcast. That's
1: us. (laughs) Very nice.
0: Yeah. The Cinematically Correct Podcast. The Cutaway Podcast. The girls talk about films and they have editing, film editing experience. They're oh. really interesting to listen to. Yeah. Um, the Ripping Podcast. Dial M for movie podcast.
1: <laughs> Very nice.
0: The Dungeons and Dragons Podcast. The Super Movie Brothers Podcast. There's one of the pod, part of the Podfix Network, guys. Yeah. Um, we have a couple more. Um, the unremarkable Miranda, Julia Miranda, and Dave, her husband, Dave, the producer. They always help out other podcasters. They're wonderful. Um, the Epic Film Guys, who are actually oh. doing um, some live streaming for the cure of cancer. So they're oh, doing Fantastic. Live, yeah, they're live streaming, and money raised for the live streaming, they're donating all of it to cancer Absolutely research.
1: Absolutely wonderful. That it, is that's just amazing.
0: Um, the Evil Geeks Podcast, <laughs> uh, the wonderful guys at launching the pilot podcast, talk about first episodes of TV shows. Um, the difference between his podcast, the Hungry for Laughs podcast, the Ghost for Stratosphere podcast, Pitney and Amelia's Bitchin' podcast, <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs>
0: um, Karaoke Big E podcast. We like you. You keep doing what you're doing, buddy. And of course drunken discussions podcast we did that shit podcast <laughs> alternate history podcast I do like that one it's oh. a, what if what if the Nazis won the war fascinating yeah, yeah it's and of course the Nick and Vince podcast I wonder why they are supporting us <laughs> Thank you again for all of you supporting and we'll get you mentioned everything we really appreciate all the other podcasts that supported us.
1: Yes, thank you very much. So,
0: the first episode we're going to talk about 1939's
1: "Gone with the Wind." Gone with the with wind.
0: The wind. <laughs> it's one of those wonderful musical scores. Da, da, oh, da, da,
1: da. absolutely uh, fascinating. Max uh, is a Max Steiner. Um yeah. Snyder? Steiner. He was a. He was actually a pupil of. Uh, um, uh, well, he was a pupil of uh, what, classical. Yes, classical. Uh, of uh, the German composer that starts with an S, Strauss. by Strauss, yes. Strauss. Yes, he. Yes, he was. And uh, it's a beautiful. Well, it sets a mood. You know, it's that's got- what music's supposed to do is sets a mood, and that's exactly we what it does. You know, when you're does. composing
0: music, it's one of those things that you have to. Musically, it's almost you ask a question and then you answer. It's one of those nice things about *Gone with the Wind*. It's da 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 da, and it's, yep. it has that sweeping sound to it—a sweeping epic, but it has a—it goes up at the end, so it has a little bit like almost a note of hope at the end.
1: It does, and, and uh, but there's a element of melancholy, and then you see the. You right. know, the credits crawling across the screen, which never was done before. They, no, I,
0: I imagine if they went to see the theater and you see in white, gone yep. with it scrolls from right to left. And from the beginning of the film to the bottom, big, Right, bad.
1: and it uh, it really had, in Technicolor, so yeah. it, this, these were all new at the time. We kind of yeah. take it from granted, but for a new crowd, it was, wow, it was you know, yeah. so just awesome.
0: Before we get to, like, the really the meat and stuff of Gone with the Wind, I yeah. just want to give a couple of cool facts about it. Um, it was the first movie on Turner Classic Movie Channel. Of That's course, right. Because Ted Turner's from Atlanta, and the movie's, of course it is. Yeah, he, like, yeah.
1: And he, uh, it was... Uh the first production uh, on TV was 1976 on yeah on NBC on NBC and it was in two parts NBC yep okay NBC yeah and I remember that was the first time that I was introduced to it as a kid right
0: people think that we forget that before 1976 you couldn't have like a VH copy of it you want to go see you had to go see if another theater is playing it again
1: that's true and they would bring it out like every 15 years um, right and that was one of the few films that they would there was a show Going in '67, I think right. there was one in the '50s and the '40s, and then of course the premiere in '39. But the '76 one was the first time that it was on TV. On TV, and it was um, two
0: parts. You watch part one at the yep. okay,
1: and then you would watch the second part it was right the next day. And so it it um, they received a whole new audience with Gone with the Wind. And by that time, everybody had color TVs. So
0: right, yeah. Um, and this is, I don't, you know, 1939 when Gone with the, it came out in December 1939. But I was, bef- we were kind of doing a prep, and I was like, man, go back to movies in 1938, and they're just so stiff. They are, and so stagnant, and even the, there's not enough dynamic with camera that would pu- give it a good punch with that you can see with Gone with the Wind and how color and palette of color and actually staging the scenes
1: it's true they did different things the uh, crane shot when, which never was done before right. uh, for the scene where all the soldiers were lying out in Atlanta this right was, you start yeah. when she's
0: oh, just goes outside and uh-huh. then the crane goes up and you see the scope of it
1: yeah you see you first you see Scarlet coming out and you yeah. see the reaction on her face and then you wonder to yourself well, why is she so you know agog and aghast yeah. and then it pans out out slowly. Too, you see a few soldiers on the ground, right. then you see more, then you see more, and then, oh my God, you see almost the whole city on the backdrop of a Confederate flag and, you know, the um, basic onslaught of what happened to these soldiers. It's a very moving scene.
0: Right, and yeah. that's not, that's not CGI, there's extras. It's, yeah, <laughs>
1: right. and they got in trouble right. for that, too, because the uh, the Actors Guild said, hey, you know, you better get real actors in there. They didn't have enough, so they used dummies. And so so, oh, they did.
0: Yes. Oh, wow.
1: So you'll see some moving. The ones that aren't, they're they're mannequins.
0: So of course, this all started because of Margaret Mitchell's book. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe we should just start actually from the beginning.
1: She uh, she was uh, she was born in 1900, and she's right. origin. She was originally from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, just like Scarlett. Yeah. She yeah. was a sure-tail relative of uh, Doc. I'm your Huckleberry uh, Holiday. Really? Uh, yes. In wow. fact, wasn't Doc?
0: Named Doc because he was a dentist?
1: Yes, he was. Yeah, okay. Yep. And uh, you know how they talk in the movie and and in the book, you know, how the Hamiltons and the Wilkes marry their cousins. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Doc Holliday was a cousin to... Uh, Maddie Holiday, who was also a cousin to Margaret Mitchell.
0: Okay, that's and, bizarre. Yeah.
1: yeah, and Maddie is the same name as, you know, Manny Hamilton, you know. And, oh, yeah. yeah, all right, the Hamil- okay. And that's where Margaret Mitchell got the idea for, you know, uh, Olivia de Havilland's character. Melanie. Yeah, Melanie, all yep, right. but her nickname was Maddie, yeah. And uh,
0: the, uh, the... Well, she she got inspired because as a childhood she saw these... Uh, dilapidated yes, plantations.
1: She went out into the um, she would take rides with her aunt and they would go out into the backwoods of Georgia and she would see these you know ruins at that yeah. time of plantations and she she also talked about that uh, you know of going on the porches and families were meeting families and the uh, civil war was pretty much still in the minds of the people at the time. Yeah.
0: So civil war happened. It ended in 1864. And this is now still in the 1900s, about 40 years Yeah. After still, that, still it's about, still there,
1: about nineteen, about nineteen ten, yeah she's talking about when she's a child, and she said, "I heard everything in the world except that the Confederates lost the war <laughs> when I was ten years old, it was a violent shock to learn that General Lee had been defeated. I didn't believe it at first, and I was indignant. I still find it hard to believe, so strong are childhood memories and so she she remembered that, and she remembered these stories, and then going past these yeah. ruins of plantations. Uh, She would fill in the blanks. She would fill in the blanks. She would, you know, she would talk about, you know, I could see, you know, with my, she had a great imagination of the hoop skirts that the ladies were wearing and the gentry that were there. And she was told about the stories of, you know, that were probably very similar to the barbecue at 12 Oaks. And, you know, this was all swimming in her head because she remembered that. And uh, she, when she was older, she uh, injured her ankle. She was was an invalid temporarily and she was getting bored. And so she decided, I'm going to put this to paper. Yeah. And she started writing, um, uh, she started with the last chapter first, actually.
0: Well, they tell you, you have to know your ending. Some people, some good artists, yep. some good, like Jack Kurek, he's just going to figure it out as we go. But if you really want a sound structure like this one, you have to figure out your ending first. That's true. It does have, it does have one of the most memorable endings.
1: It's It does. Yeah. yeah. Well, Selznick had a fight for that ending yeah, with yeah, the I, Well, well, we'll uh, everybody
0: <laughs> sure knows it. we'll get to it. But yep. We'll, have, we will. Um, before I don't want to jump when, I think she was a journalist. She's one of the f- yeah. rare, fee- rare female journalists to <laughs> yep. r- write, and she worked for the Atlanta Journal. And yep. then she has an injury. Well, what the heck? I can't go up. And, and right, you know, write and so this, she, yeah, she idea. starts.
1: She starts writing all these memories that she remembers as a child. And her mother was a suffragette, uh, and uh, Margaret was known as being rather sassy. Yeah, rather, uh, rather precocious as a, as a young woman. And, um, just like some
0: of the characters. In very
1: story. much like <laughs> Scarlet. In fact, there's a story where um, Margaret's mother was uh, doing a rallying speech for the suffragettes. You know, she was very much into the woman's movement at the time. All right. And you had Margaret at a gas, you know, at a gas pole, a gas lamp that she was on waving and giving kisses to the men that were going by. <laughs> you know? <laughs> just <laughs> <to> being <laughs> a thorn in her mother's side and um she herself was she uh, remind you know yeah.
0: well, we did our research about Margaret Mitchell but she definitely reminds me a little bit like Mary Shelley who did Frankenstein. Yes. She had a mom very much for women's rights and she had a, a the writing bug and she, she did, did journalism and Mary Shelley kind of rubbed off on her. She was kind of a very, you know, yeah. tough girl that she uh she hanged out with the boys. And yeah, she, she,
1: she did. And yeah. she was very ahead of her time. I mean, she was a drinker. She was a smoker. Things, Two things that women shouldn't and she, do. And, and, and you, she's and... surprising. She's a little short.
0: Margaret Mitchell, yeah. a little short little girl. She's like five foot two. Yep. So when you see her like during the premiere, and all of a sudden, they have
1: to adjust the mics for her. Right. <laughs> but she definitely had moxie. She yeah. oh. Usually, the little short girls always do it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like, moxie. Right? <laughs> That's true. And uh, uh, if you look into the character of Scarlett, though, probably one of the most... Uh, um, from a, uh, well, from a feminist point of view, one of the most strongest women that you'll ever read, yeah. you know, um, book-wise and also movie-wise. And it was one of the reasons why Vivian Lee, you know, clashed horns with Victor Fem- uh, Fleming, which, well. The director, well, yeah. yeah you know, you the director, which we'll go on about. So, so the
0: book, uh, she's writing the book, and I think it catches, I don't remember, if you remember, it catches wind from movie executive about this book. Yeah. And major major studios are wanting to do this. And I think even Daryl Zanuck at 20th Century Fox was interested. He made a bid. Um, I think Jack Warner... Turned it said no. Yeah, he wanted Betty. Maybe Betty Davis. And Betty Davis was like no, I'm not going to do that. Not going
1: to do it. Betty Davis went <laughs> on to do Rebecca, which was um, very similar yeah. to uh, um, oh Jezebel. She Jezebel, did Jezebel. Yeah. yeah, which was very similar in many ways to Gone with the Wind. Um, Louis B. Meyer uh,
0: from MGM. I don't remember, but he was not interested. Which is a funny thing because David O. would produce it. at David O. That's his father in law was Louis. Yeah, B. yeah. It
1: was it was a fam- It was a family affair. It but
0: uh i think somebody on the staff i think i can't remember her name her script supervisor for david Rosell, katie for pressed him hard yes. to get this movie she's like you need to do this Ev-
1: big- yeah everybody knew about this book it yeah. was um even before
0: it even was finished
1: oh, it was a huge book everybody knew about the book yeah and uh so when there was talk of a movie coming out of it, it was like, "Oh wow, who's going to be Scarlet?" Everybody was curious upon who was going to be Scarlet, and uh, so Sel- oh, Selznick, when he finally agreed to it, he kind of became a master of all trades with this. He did, not yeah. only was the producer, but uh, he. Um, <laughs> he had his fingers in everybody's, uh, you know, uh, mocha malt with this thing. I mean, he was a producer right. director. He
0: screamed. and then before he uh, actually started to, to be the producer of the movie, he yeah. w- he used to have jobs in other film. Uh, Studio. So he used to work at MGM. He used to work yep. at Warner. He used to. So he's not like somebody that is an outsider. in. he kind of knew how to navigate this. And he had his own office. And he's starting his own production company. He wanted to be David O. Saldnick Productions. Right. And he's going to use this movie to launch it.
1: And uh, it was one heck of a launch. Uh, most of the people thought it was going to be a folly. They didn't think it was going to it, it was going to uh, work. But uh, in fact, uh, it had three directors. And you know, if you read probably Variety at the time, you would probably think that it wasn't going to work. The directors being George Cooker, who was very uh, um, spent two years on pre production, and was very meticulous with uh, the detail. He wanted the um, the uniforms, everything about the story to be as, as authentic as possible. Right, yeah. And uh, and the thing is, is that after a while, the pre-production amount was the of the money was going up. And Selznick says, well, you know, we can't do this anymore. And it, he filmed 18 days, and yeah. then he was fired, and Victor Fleming— So one of the things about this history we're learning about Gone with the Wind is right. the scope of it—
0: Anytime you talk about it, of any angle is magnified. It's yeah. enormous. It is. Any pre-production I think was two years, which was even at that time was ridiculous of spend a movie in pre-production. You for never two did years. that.
1: Yeah. It, Hollywood was a dream machine where they would crank out films left and right. Yeah. no one spent two years on a pre-production of a film.
0: Right. It's the very famous of uh, story of Daryl Zanuck was sit down New Year's Day. Yep. And he had his office, and he had a stack of scripts, and you sit there with a green marker. <laughs> with a, yes, we'll do that one. Yep. Nope. Yes. Nope. And that was the years of movies.
1: Well, yep. And it was on a serious timetable, and it was a machine. It was a well-oiled machine, yeah. and every department and the old studio had their own job to do. And it's like, okay, and let's get this done. It was like conveyor belt filming. And, and this is
0: the unique thing about *Gone with the Wind*: was it was wasn't it was get the right thing down first was, yes before we start filming it
1: it was let's do this perfectly so the way of making films before was thrown right out the window right yeah. and uh victor Fem- fleming was so hey you know want you to be the director he's just hot off the trail of wizard of oz and had to deal with um ocell snake scheduling <laughs> and <laughs> literally um the story goes is that he had a nervous breakdown and he was threatening to drive his drive himself off a cliff um so he took a little break (laughs) and then you had we had sam wood um a director to fill in and it was
0: just temporary i think maybe like a a week or so
1: but you know if you would look at the um you know the business stats and variety on this movie being made you would think oh my god this is going to be a disaster. You had uh you had George Cooper filming 18 days, you had Fleming filming 93 days, yeah. and then you had Sam Wood filming 24 days while, you know, by the time this whole thing was over, now we have editing.
0: Now we <laughs> so, got to edit the
1: movie. Yep. Um
0: prior to how did David Oselnik get uh Vivian Lee? Is actually a marvelous story for uh, that in itself? He went on an open audition yep. to find somebody. He wasn't going to do a major starlet. He yep. wanted Somebody that looked, acted, an authentic Scarlett O'Hara, and he went on a massive scope in auditions. There's stories of thousands of girls showing up to his office and opening calls, and he went over to Europe and looked, and he spent, I think, about months yep. looking for somebody.
1: People, like I said, everybody has read, had read the book, so they have a predisposed idea of who Scarlett is. Yeah. And so there is already a fan base there before the film. And so... Uh, you know you think hey we have to find a you know a a good actor to fill these uh, you know, uh, films for Star Wars, it yes. was basically the same thing. Yeah. They uh, they sat back and they said, we have to find somebody that everybody's going to love, that everybody's going to say, that's Scarlett."
0: And if you go back, there's some on YouTube, you can find it, The Making of "God with the Wind. But one of the, actually comes pretty close that didn't get it, was Patricia Goddard.
1: She was amazing. Yes. I had an opportunity to take a look at her uh, screen test. And I sat back and said, she would have been brilliant. She brilliant. Was- in fact, really they good. said,
0: you probably do have it. And they weren't, they're were still looking. They they gave her like a soft yes to her. Yeah. And if you don't know who Patricia Garda she was in minor roles. She actually was married to Charlie Chaplin for a while, but she's in those short comedies like Charlie Chaplin's movies and uh, with Lauren Hardy and stuff like that. Yep. But she, man, if she, if, if there was no such thing as Vivian Lee, she would have definitely been in it.
1: They, at first, when they did find Vivian Lee, um, the then this is a true story. The daughters of the Confederacy did not like the idea of Vivian Lee being Scarlet because she was English. Yeah. And it was uh, David O'Selznick that stated, um, "Well, my plan, my idea is to get Katherine Hepburn, which they went absolutely crazy about. No way is no a Yankee, Yankee, no Yankee is going to be playing Scarlett O'Hara. Okay, we'll take Vivian Lee. <laughs> so I, I don't know if you, maybe you want to explain
0: a little bit. What are the daughters of the Confederacy? If you want to explain, uh, they
1: they were a um, an organization that were actual. Uh, uh they took care of the cemeteries they had cotillions, they uh uh raised money for the uh for the veterans
0: so they commissioned statues um preservations yeah. of the confederacy history
1: yeah and they were very they they were very well known within the circles of uh the southern states you know yeah. they you would know of them and um gone with the wind they were, they had their own idea who they wanted Scarlett to play. (laughs) So that'll give you an idea. Um, when Catherine Hepburn was mentioned, it was like, uh, uh, and, but then O'Sulston got his way with Vivian Lee and, uh, she was amazing. She was, um, uh, she, I, there was no, when I saw her screen test, there, there was no right. doubt in my mind. I know,
0: like we said, we, if you watch Patricia Garda's screen test, it's good. It's but good. But com- compared to Vivian, it's, it's, it's not even, Uh, it's not even, it's so obvious.
1: Yes. It's from, it goes from good to phenomenal. And I was kind of taken aback by Godard because I've never, all the other ones. And Lana Turner, who was a good actress and it was in yeah. some really good movies.
0: She uh, had a horrible personal life, but okay. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry, in her. But Go. she
1: just wasn't, you know. Didn't uh, have the punch. You know, it's punch, something yeah. like,
0: it's just like we always talk about auditions. You know, if you knew a superhero, you put on the outfit and say the lines and nobody's laughing, that you have a good chance. <laughs> and yep. she put on the outfit and she said the lines and nobody, like, all right, that that work, you know.
1: Now we might be prejudiced a bit because, you know, we already have seen Vivian Lee as uh, as Scarlett O'Hara. So we already have a predisposed idea. But um, you have to understand that like I said, people already read the book, so they already do have a predisposed idea what Scarlett should be like.
0: Right. And primarily the book and and the movie is her transformation, her evolution, which is not complete. Her character does go through changes, but not wholesale right i'm trying to explain and not without but she does get her comeuppings but does that really authentically change her who okay. she really is
1: right because usually in a story you have to say just oh she's growing she's grown as a right. person she's matured and um has she i would say that out of all the characters the one that's matured is rhett butler he, right, he
0: went through an evolution.
1: Yes, he did. Yeah. And which is interesting because it's not his movie which Clark yeah. Gable was very upset about and, yeah. you know, more than once was thinking about not even being in the film.
0: Um, yeah, uh, it took a lot to get, and uh, I think David O'Sullivan really bonded him, and it pressed him hard to yep. get the movie he wanted, and, you know, th- three years ago, prior to that, uh, Clark Label did, it It, it could ha- happen one night, Yep. Um. which was probably the first really rom-com ever made. It was, It was yes. one of the first rom-comedies, it was a comedy, it was a romance that everybody kind of it did. It had the ending that they finally get together, and it cuts yeah. these two people who don't get along. It's all true. of a sudden, they do now yeah. figure out that they love each other. And
1: great writing too. And
0: great writing, love and it me. has the classic scene of how they pick up hitchhikers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and Clark thought he was kind of done by 19. 19- it's amazing. He thought he was kind of done with movies by 1936, and um, he's actually personally he's married to I think her name was Maria something. But he's publicly going out with Carol Lombard. Yes, he, <laughs> right? yes, he is. And um, the movie's like, what? The movie studio's like, what can we do to get this movie? Well, he they he said, well, if you pay for my divorce, I'll do the movie. Yeah, <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> and it's hey, we got him. <laughs> which could you believe that now? You know, oh. you try to get Brad Pitt on a movie yeah. like,
0: well, I pay for my divorce, divorce I'll, uh, I'll do this. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it, no problem. <laughs> 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 and it, it, I don't know if you kind of see it that he's kind of. He, he kind of has a reserve performance that
1: he's not, he, I don't, he, and it's true. And, and he, uh, he did some scenes that, uh, made him cringe. Actually, the scene where, uh, uh, this is in the second act where, uh, um, the war's over, but, uh, um, but, in fact, Bonnie is uh, passed on, and he's getting really jaded about the relationship between him and Scarlett because he yeah. believes Scarlet's uh, cheating on her. And Scarlet says, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a baby." And, Red. and and Rhett says, "Well, you know." who's the father basically and she falls down the steps and there's the scene afterwards he did not want to cry he did he thought that it was unmanly that uh, right yes and he, he he begged victor fleming oh my god don't make me do this my fans do um are not do not want to see me cry and it was selznick and fleming that told him hey you know they're gonna love you. They're gonna empathize with your character. They're gonna they're right. gonna love you. And there were two scenes that were shot. One was where, uh, Rhett feels sorrowful, but you see the back of him, and then you see yep. the one that we see with him and Melanie, and he's bawling his eyes out, and the crowd went wild. They loved yeah. it. They said keep it. And-,
0: <laughs> and so you know, when we talk about this, we have a kind of a sense that you've already seen this movie, and if you haven't seen it, my gosh, you should just pause right now and see it, but yeah um i haven't read the book have you even tried reading the book
1: uh one thousand and some 86 pages it's it, <laughs> it, yeah, it's right. a doorstop yeah i i <laughs> I, I haven't and that's and i'm not slamming the book i there's a lot right. there's a huge fan base um i did not i'm familiar with the story through the film
0: I, we're just I, it, it's hard to demonstrate i'm not against books but we're such movie oriented people. right that I watch the movie first, and if I really like the movie, I'll probably go to the book. Yeah. But since this story is so faithful to the book, I have no interest in reading the book.
1: It really is. Father
0: didn't find out that Rhett Butler had a sister named Rosemary. Right. And that's not in the movie. They had, there's certainly, there's a lot of other characters that get cut out, but yeah. yeah.
1: And the writing for the final script for the movie was such a horrible... Um, event that it was developed in its own play. There's a play called uh, Moonlight and Magnolias, and it tells what? The, yes, Moonlight and Magnolias. If you get an opportunity, check it out. All right, it's a um, it's a play, a true about the true story where Selznick literally uh, locked uh, <laughs> Ben Hecht, who was a script doctor, locked him into office for a week, you know, to turn Mitchell's monolithic novel into a usable screenplay and locked him in
0: yeah i don't know if uh, people know about that but usually when a script is used for a movie there are some rewrites and they will yeah. hire other writers and other screenwriters and sometimes that's how it gets your foot in the door is you're hired to rewrite dialogue for a script that you won't get credit because yep. the person wrote the script but that's how you sometimes you get the foot door the very famous one is of course a- um kaufman he Right, he does. His, um, and Aaron Sorkin has done rewrites. And in fact, in this movie, he has a very famous author that rewrote. That's some of the right. Scenes.
1: And and this is not a rumor. Um, this is this is a true story. F. Scott Fitzgerald's words are a part of the script of Gone with the Wind.
0: Now, do we we know he was? Do we know what he wrote, or is it kind of reserved?
1: I know that he wrote it. I don't know that. Guess that's another time for another show.
0: <laughs> but I don't. I think it's well guarded that what he did, because people yeah. would want to give him credit. But I think when he did it, it was like we're not going to tell anybody. what Right. Do. Yeah.
1: Probably all the drinking scenes that Rhett and Scarlett had. <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 right. is what I think. And the
0: other thing is. Um, David O'Sullivan was constantly himself rewriting script. I mean, yes. the script did win a Best Adaptive Screenplay, in the, uh, and I think it's Erna I can't remember this. this gets credit for. But David O'Sullivan did a lot of the rewrites for it. Pretty much the original script is does not look like anything we see in the movie. That's, that's true. In fact, it frustrated the actors because they don't know what their lines are the next day. That's right. Yeah.
1: And with uh, uh, Vivian Lee, um, she really liked George Cukor. As a director, she worked with him before. She was, she liked, um, she liked how he directed. Right, yeah. uh, Victor Fleming was a different sort of animal. He was more of a man's man's director.
0: He's not really what they call an actor's actor. He's just right. Like, just say the lines and yeah. do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I guess he would get on uh, Vivian Lee's case a lot and try to. I think, he, well, what's told is that he was trying to evoke the bitchiness that Scarlett O'Hara was. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, Vivian Lee would make a point of having the book. On um, on the set saying, <laughs> you know, you're talking about your vision. This is Margaret Mitchell's vision right here. <laughs> she was like a fundamentalist saying, you know, this is how it should be. It's in the book. And, um, yeah, so they, they knocked heads constantly.
0: And one of the famous reluctance not to read it was... Uh, Clark Gable. He refused yeah. to read
1: it. I'm not yeah, going to read it. <laughs> I'm not, this is a woman's book. And he was, yeah, he was very against that. Uh, another one was Leslie Howard, who uh, was... Um, Ashley Wilkes. Ashley Wilkes. Yeah. And he uh, he was very upset at the fact that, you know, he, he was in his 40s and they had him playing a 20-year-old. And he just thought it was kind of a Reject farce, Gables. ridiculous. And he would only make a point of learning the scenes that he was in. Yeah. And that was it. He looks like he's
0: uninterested. In yeah. It. And I, they talked about it in a lot of documentaries. Well, he's British, and World War II broke out in September, and this movie came out in December. And, you know, he kind of probably was, knows that there's turmoil in Europe, but I'm making this movie about american civil war he, he pretty, pretty much probably wasn't interested yeah. yeah and he seems like it he really he does seem like it yeah.
1: that's right he seems
0: extremely detached but he had a wonderful accomplished acting career
1: he did yeah. he was the first um henry higgins in pygmalion before right. uh learner and low um, set music to it and my fair lady and he, yes. he's a very good uh henry higgins um in fact i would say you know um uh, better than Rex Harrison. People uh,
0: forget that My Fair Later is an adaptation
1: to... George Pig, Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. Pygmalion, yeah. Malian,
0: yeah. Um, and then you have... She's still around. She's still got the gusto. Olivia de Havilland. Oh, God bless her. I think she's one of the last
1: people still around. She's like ninety. Yes, she is. Yes, God bless her. And she's she's in a lawsuit. That tells you that she has moxie. <laughs> <laughs> she's in a lawsuit. She right didn't now. like how it,
0: though they did the, the TV show The Feud, which is based on... Uh, Betty Davis and Joan, uh, Joan.
1: Oh, Joan uh, Crawford.
0: Joan Crawford yeah. did uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, and there's some scenes of uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones portraying Olivia De Havilland, and she's very upset how she's viewed. Yeah, and, and she, she's given her insight of her feud with her sister Joan Fontaine, Olivia. Ooh, de, that's It's right. a very famous on. Un- but they don't really. She never. They never really came out officially saying this happened. But yeah, everybody knows that Joan Fontaine and Olivia De Havilland did not get along. Oh no. no, yeah,
1: it
0: was, uh, and they always say no, we were fine. No, they were bitter rivals. Oh, they yeah, yeah, that's true. In fact, they think the next one of the feud will be about Olivia De Havilland and Joan <laughs> Fontaine. <one laughs> yeah.
1: make a great movie. <laughs> right.
0: But she is right. uh, she's still kicking, and she plays Melody, who happens to be uh Scarlett's cousin who eventually yes. marries Ashley Wilkes.
1: Yes, and the one uh, person that Scarlet truly hates but can't come out and say it because no. she's such a saint. No,
0: she she can raise her <laughs> eyebrow at her. That yeah.
1: That's yeah. about the best she could do. And of course, you
0: know, of course Scarlett makes a sash for Ashley that he comes kind of very reluctant to accept and very makes him kind of awkward to like what Right.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's uh, uh
0: even after she married... she now her her first husband. Right. Yeah.
1: And uh yeah, it was like um lie, cheat, or steal to try to get <laughs> Ashley's favor. Um very very much so the way that she holds on to Tara, you know. She's uh what um the uh South call a um uh guts, so I don't know. Yeah, um, a scallywag. A scallywag well, is, is one who will work with the Yankees, and right. she was going to do anything to keep the land.
0: See, I don't know if it's intentional I want to get your opinion. They are Irish stubborn. O- yes, they are. And I don't know if that's just kind of... you think that's intentional? or
1: just? I, I, I think it's intentional because I believe that uh, the Mitchells were stubborn, and I believe that Margaret Mitchell was stubborn, and yeah. I think that... Um, in my sense, from from learning about the author and then seeing the film, that she is Scarlett O'Hara yeah. in in uh, in many ways. Well, one of the
0: few scenes she has with her dad, Gerald, he's riding a horse even though he's not supposed to. Right. That stubbornness and you know, yeah. don't tell your mother I'm doing this. And
1: <laughs> that's right. And then, by the
0: way, this is all yours and enjoy it and all that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: And it, yeah, and that's true. And she and uh, well, we see what happens to him. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, but you know when we were talking about the uh, characters growing, you know, uh, Rhett, yeah. I believe, actually, he went from a um, a. Uh, well, a Lothario to yes. a you know, a playboy., uh, but he has absolutely no pretensions about him. He right. doesn't believe in the cause. he He's an absolute realist. um he does not believe that the Confederacy is right. One of the beginnings
0: is that they're in the the lounge area at Tara and everybody's right. talking we'll kick the Yankees out. And he's like, I don't think not. And too much where he knows he wore out his welcome. oh. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And he doesn't join the Confederacy uh, Confederacy until he realizes and he knows, well, this is a lost cause. Right. You know now I'll join <laughs> and uh, very much a part of his character. And you know he, and you see this, uh, you know, this rum runner, this uh, you know he's yeah. he's kind of a you know uh, um, well he's kind of a bandit in a way. Uh, that yeah. he actually gets a heart when he has a daughter, Bonnie, and you really see that he's he's really in love with Bonnie, and his heart changes. He, you know, he has growth. You know.
0: Yeah, and in the meantime, we see Scarlett go through her changes of. Doing Becoming now desperate. She actually has the taste of desperation. That yes. she, didn't, she never knew what that was about before. In fact, you get this wonderful, and I always say the best things about a, this movie is you get an intro, it's a party, an introduction to all these characters. Right. And you see a lot of times how you, before we get exposition, but you see the party and how everybody interacts.
1: True. And, and she she's, has, yeah, and she has that epiphany. She's holding court. Yeah. And all these guys are, <laughs> and she's holding court. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she, she has that epiphany finally that, oh, yes, Rhett is the one. It never was actually Rhett is the one, but by that time, like any tragedy, it's too late, it you is, know, because yep, yeah. she couldn't act, and it's, uh, when she finally realized it, he's gone. You know, he could care less. I could give a damn.
0: <laughs> and, so it's one of the most famous backdrops it is, of course, the Civil War, and it yep. demonstrates uh, Atlanta burning, I think.
1: Yes, and they were trying to figure out how to do that, and this is years before CGI, and uh, they came up with the idea that, hey, we still have the back lot of King Kong, which, you know, really? almost 10 years ago earlier, you know, King Kong was made. Yeah. Well, they still had the um, um, all of the parts for King Kong, the the giant uh, uh, where the uh, island was and Skull, yeah, Skull Island. island. And they burnt that down as representation of Atlanta. You got to be kidding me! Nope, no, really. not my hand to God. Oh my God. <laughs>
0: and it was one of the most famous events of Civil War. And in fact, uh, McKellen, before he invaded Atlanta, he sent out letters: "Get the heck out here! We're going total yeah. total war. Yep, you better get out before we burn everything to the ground." So it's very everybody knew weeks ahead that was going to happen.
1: Right, and. Uh, and the audience in that, you know, in that first premiere, they remembered that it was still fresh in the minds of those people, and, and so to see it again, um, you know. Uh- nobody you know lived during the civil war those people in that audience did and right. so they've they pretty much said yeah that's that's how it was
0: uh cinematically you do get a foreshadowing because it's a lot of red hues of the sky and everything oh. like a t- dusk twilight. you get this hue of a buildup of this atlanta burning so it's almost like they had little dashes of for- a foreshadowing with the colors oh a beautiful of, color yeah
1: of um, and I know we we talked about this before, um, but one uh, director that decided to use that color and represent it was Francis Ford Coppola when he made the movie The Outsiders.
0: Yeah, this is a, this is a new thing, and you brought it up during our prep. I have no—and I've seen—my God, I read the book, too. Yeah. Um, he references Gone with the Wind um, filming the movie The Outsiders.
1: Yeah, and there is the scene with— uh, pony boy and of uh, Ralph Macchio's character yeah. um, and they you know they uh, uh, are on the hideout you know and they they have a terrible life. They're they're right. they're greasers and they're constantly in a class struggle with the socials, and their kids. Yep. It, it's it's a really by really unsupervised Hinton, unsupervised yeah, unsupervised, kids. unsupervised and it's a real heartbreaker of a story. Um, and here are these kids, they they're hiding out. They find this abandoned schoolyard and they find this book of Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. <laughs> And they started reading it, uh, because one knows how to read, the other one doesn't, and um, they are able to kind of forget their miserable life, and that's what Coppola does. And he uses that technicolor that Gone with the Wind had to represent that in this movie. And it's absolutely amazing for those two characters. i got to go back now and watch it. It's yeah. a great
0: flick. The funny <laughs> thing is if you can buy the book now, that has the cover of the movie. Yes. So even I think people will know the Outsiders, but if you buy the book, it's still, it's, the movie's so popular. It that is. You can buy the cover of the, yeah.
1: It was a required reading for me when I was in eighth grade, so I remembered it. And so when it became a film, it was like, oh, wow. So I had to check it out. Um I, I didn't have as great detail about the story when I first saw it, but as time went on, it's like, whoa. I,
0: you, we're going a little, we're going straight away, but I didn't, I completely forgot Francis Ford Coppola did two S.E. Hinton books. He did yes, The C. Outsider and, and Rumblefish. Rumblefish. And
1: Rumblefish also was a very amazing book. Hopefully sometime we can touch on that.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I Wonderful. Uh, we're getting back to Gone with the Wind, yeah. and we're talking about foreshadowing. Uh, we have another aspect that does Get a lot of recognition is costume design, art direction. Yes. And this is one where I think it is, even though acting and art and staging and the stairs and everything but costume design gets a full credit of recognition
1: and I, I have to give that to George Cooker because he set the groundwork in those two years on what was going to be represented yeah. and uh, it's it's beautiful um, it's,
0: it's not only Vivian Lee's performance famous but her wardrobes are oh, equally oh
1: yeah her, her going down the steps in that hoop dress <laughs> right <laughs> you yeah. know and everybody's running around her you know and there's all chaos and you can hear Dixie in the in the background yeah. and you know you see everyone and they're, you know, and their Sunday finest. It's it's amazing. Yeah.
0: Um the other aspect of it is backlighting. So you mm-hmm. have the forefront is dark, but behind the is colored. And yes. they use that extensively. I think they use that for Atlanta Burning. They use it for her, her was it the end of Act Two when she's her proclamation oh, scene?
1: I um I swear to God I will never be hungry again. Yes. And there was um there's one scene too which um happens early and it was the scene with uh, um you know her her paw. Yeah. You know what you tell me, Katie Scarlett O'Hara. You know, <laughs> well, if you got a drop of blood of Irish, oh, the land is your mother. <laughs> and uh, there was the scene of big tree, you know, overlooking Tara, oh. and then the sun is setting. Well, they didn't have the quality to do that back then, and they and Selznick actually got uh, advanced mathematicians uh, to account for one of the most beautiful scenes in the film. Okay. Uh, yeah. The crew was in contact with the math. Department at UCLA <laughs> <laughs> they came up with a way to fit everything together using advanced calculus to make sure that that scene would work properly
0: with the, the everything black in front yeah color
1: wow a color in back and uh it is a beautiful scene and nobody ever saw that before in film
0: so when you take uh cinematography and you talk about shouting and framing you yep. need something stationary to give it a pop of the scope. And the tree is definitely... The tree looks... And yeah, that's the one. The magnitude of it. Yep. And it's kind of a metaphor of the story. The tree is kind of a metaphor. Of how the magnitude of these characters yep. are minute to the big story. <sighs> yeah.
1: And it's it's a great scene because you see them... You see the uh, um, the O'Hara's in their splendor. They are right. at the... This is... This is um you know before the war uh and they're at their height and then the next scene you see is that tree with that tree is Scarlett O'Hara finding a rut in the ground and yep. she is just you know she's just a sh- um, a shadow of what she was
0: so uh, yeah at the beginning the first scene it's magnificently impressive everything yep. is grand and then you see how Small you are in the world. Yep. Compared with the, yeah.
1: You see the beginning of that act, and then you yeah. see the end of that, of that act. And what is, you know, what is transpired. So, and, it, and I want to
0: talk about it. It's another thing, of, of course, like, they do it in Ben-Hur, but they do a, of course, like Judah Ben-Hur's palace. It looks magnificent and yes. everything. Of course, like Terra, magnificent. But then you see the change once war happens, and it's like fall. Right. Yeah, it's desolate. It's not lit. It's gray.
1: It's foreboding. Yes. It's uh, the scene th- that will always take me, and it brings me back to the stories uh, that Margaret Mitchell taught about as a child, where she would be in a carriage with her aunt, that she would see these grand, stately plantations, yeah. and just like the one where Melanie Hamilton, we lived through it in the first act, saw 12 oaks, and yeah. she looks up, and yep. then all she sees is just this broken down ruin of uh, a building. That yeah, you know
0: it is going to come, because... The- Eventually, because that's what their inspiration seems. Right. That the are yeah, gonna visually have to see what this like. And I think was it her dad's still living there, right? Right. Yeah, and he's, it's almost like he's in complete denial, right?
1: Oh, I think he's he's his his mind's unhinged actually. Right. Um, he he's talking as if his wife's still alive and he's, uh, collecting counterfeit money, right. <laughs> currency, and
0: <laughs> it's a co- it's a total coping mechanism, right? Like delusion. To- oh, denial is yeah. is so strong. Um, another interesting uh, character that doesn't uh, get a lot of points uh, is um, the girl that he Rhett visits all the time.
1: Oh, um, uh, Bell! Yes, 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 Belle, Yes, the um, the lady of the evening with a heart of gold. There, yeah, if that's we a nice will. phrase, Yeah, and <laughs> and she is. She's uh, she. Uh, they're uh, you know she is and that's exactly what she is. She wants to do her part. She uh we all know what she does, but she's uh she she's she's a good person. And we talked about it, the reason
0: why we did it for a prep the reason why I think Rhett is attracted to her is because she's there's no secret behind her. There's, she's honest. She's honest. It's up front and this yep. is if you want my time, this is it. And she's yep. not fancy dress. She's not Right. She's not a schemer. No, like Scarlet is there's no
1: pretension. There's, right. there's yeah. no um, she's not hiding, uh, behind etiquette and propriety and this kind of false veneer of society. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Red, Butler is kind of a class breaker. He, yeah. he, he, yeah, you know, the one person that Red Butler is most concerned about in the whole story, if you think about it, is Mammy. He could care less, except for Belle, he could care less what anybody else thought about him, except for Mammy. Mammy.
0: And if you want Mm -hmm. to explain who Mammy is before...
1: Oh, Hattie McDaniel's character, who um, historically won uh, the very first Academy Award for an um, African-American supporting actress. And And she
0: heard an acceptance speech. She could barely speak. She was so... Oh great! Right.
1: And oh, the, uh, she she was at the uh, she was at the award ceremony. However, what is tragic and criminal is that she wasn't able to be a part of the premiere and in Atlanta, Georgia, because of the the laws there. Yeah. And Rep. Um, right, uh Clark Gable was this close to saying, you know, he was, saying, I'm not going to be a part of this. Right. And it was Hetty McDaniel That's that it. talked him into it, saying, "No, please." Please go. Go for me. A
0: little bit of more like the movie art, art redictating reality yeah, a little bit. It's yeah. It's true. He um, said,
1: please go for me. And, um, um, so it, in the movie, in the movie, uh, Red
0: honestly wants her acceptance.
1: Yes. And, um, and could care less about anybody else. I thought that was beautiful. Maddie is kind of, and there's two kind of, she's more of the conscious
0: character. She kind of knows how it's going on. She kind of knows what Scarlet is like. Yeah. You, you know,
1: um, Quit eating yep. stuff. <laughs> yeah, probably raised her, you know, yeah, and and, and, and in some sense maybe even knows her better than her own mother, if you think yeah. about it.
0: Um, the other thing, when the big premiere happened, this is kind of, I get a chuckle out of mm-hmm. it, well, but... Of course, Clark Gable showed up. He flew in there private. You know, yeah. They had a big parade. It was huge. They yeah, had, it was a big event. They had a big parade. It was full. It looked like a 4th of July parade yeah. before this movie premiered in Atlanta. And they had uh, Confederate uh, soldiers in, yep. in there. And then Clark Gable flew in. He wasn't part of the – he just flew in. And the best thing about <laughs> it, he goes, I, I, I'm gracious. Thank you for – and I, I'm pleased – let me enjoy this movie as like you as a spectator yeah,
1: as a spectator as what, what a nice a, yeah. way of
0: saying leave me the hell alone that's right
1: <laughs> and he, he was this close to not even going so yeah you're please, a, please let me enjoy this
0: like you as a spectator just a nice way of saying
1: leave me the hell alone. yeah yeah leave me alone air yeah please please I got such a chuckle on <laughs> that was that was funny yeah 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 <laughs> So uh, going back, there's
0: another actress, uh, Butterfly McQueen. Yes,
1: who who plays Prissy and who is uh, was also in the uh, film. Uh, of Harrison Ford's *Mosquito Coast*. Oh, she was. Yes, yeah, she was. Do you remember
0: uh, what she was in?
1: She was. She was one of the uh, island villagers at the time. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you hear her speak, and you can tell. Oh my gosh, that's that's her. That's Butterfly McQueen, and she was very except she
0: very happy that she got the movie role. Yeah. But she, she was she, so much brighter than
1: her character. She was a brilliant woman. And that, in, you have a character like uh, Prissy, Prissy, yeah. who is un, un, uneducated. Yeah. No. and yeah, even Butterfly McQueen said, "Yeah, she's she's adult, and I, you know, she she um, really didn't want, you know, didn't care for the character because, and you know, she's a very, you know, uh, articulate woman. Yeah, she was so, very smart. Very smart. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, well, at the time, she said, well, it was a job." You know, right. and She she had, uh, and um, but it's uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, in 1939,
0: after this movie came out in December 1930, it won more awards at a time than any other movie. Yes, and of course, later on, some other movies were won much more. Um, when it came out, it the box office numbers were. Enormous. Yes. Um, adjusted for inflation is still one of it's, the most...
1: It's still it's still the biggest yeah. if you adjust it for inflation. Now, it is true that in the 40s, it was brought out again. Right. You know, And so rarely are films brought out again, uh, but Gone with the Wind is. It was brought out in the 60s, and then by the time of the 70s, it was its first premiere in 1976 on TV. Even then, it... Um, it had the highest rating of uh, of m- a biggest money maker. Yeah, and uh, it
0: made David Selznick somebody to reckon with. Yes, uh, even without his unusual work habits of working long hours, <laughs> um, he would go on to bring Alfred Hitchcock into Hollywood. Yep. Alfred Hitchcock was making some silent movies. In fact, he made the first uh, British uh, talk movie. Uh blackmail.
1: Oh, oh yes, Alfred, he did. That's yeah. right.
0: And then he recruited him to do Hollywood. Alfred Hitchcock was kind of reluctant to work on Hollywood. David Selznick brought him. They did the movie Rebecca. Yes. And where they both did not get along very well. They have different styles. Yeah. All things are done. <laughs> and it, that did win Best Picture. Yes, it did. Um, It's very unforgettable Best Picture for Alfred Hitchcock.
1: Yeah. It's, and, it's it, true.
0: And I would say about David O. um Gone with the Wind Made him, and it ruined
1: him. It ruined him because after going with the wind, it was like, well, what, what do I do now? You know, yeah, where can it. you go? You know, and his great calling card after, you know, when they were doing a film was, well, this is what we did with Gone with the Wind. Yeah, you know, and so he, it was like he couldn't get away from its shadow. And he tried many times to um, ca-
0: capture light in a bottle again with yep. Gone with the Wind. And he did a movie uh, with Jennifer Jones, and eventually he fell in love with Jennifer Jones, and oh. it's a very famous one you didn't know about. I think it's with Gary Cooper. It's called Duel in the Sun. Duel oh. Duel in the Sun. It has very much the scope and scale and the look of Gone with the Wind. It's but big it's and epic. Big and epic and it had the he wanted the punch of you know, the punch color that that he got with Gone with the Wind. In fact it's very famous that they were painting cactuses on <laughs> on look green to get the look. And yep. they were painting dresses to get the punch out. And it, the story is just not captivating enough right. in fact it was such a big bomb that they call it the lust and the dust yeah which that's what, it sounds like something
1: john waters would make <laughs> <laughs> in fact i think he did make a, a, a film that was called that <laughs> lust and <laughs> <Lust of, laughs> the dust
0: and it, it's just one of those things that he just never could river even though he had some good successes they never could capture right gone right. with the wind did and of course moving on Rhett, uh carl gabriel did a couple movies afterwards to, but it Never.
1: One comes to mind is the one that he did with Marilyn Monroe, The, the misfits. misfits. Yep. Um, um, were, which they, is, were they
0: taming broken horses? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of a very fitting. And everybody talks about how you have to end your career. Yes. He was doing an immense amount of sign up movies. He was a big star. Yes, he was. And it was Misfits is one of those. that's a nice you know yep. ending for him because it's very much a, almost reflecting of his life.
1: Right. And and Vivian Lee of course went on to do Blanche DuBois in the Streetcar Named Desire with right. uh, Marlon Brando which still is a phenomenal. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And, and unfortunately she also had a bout of um, of schizophrenia too um and so that that always kind of just like Stella. Yeah. which yeah <laughs> it was rather tragic um that she she had that sickness and uh, uh well butterfly mcqueen still acted up to the point of you right. know um uh mosquito coast and unfortunately leslie howard um passed not very long after Gone with the Wind no, uh, I don't think from he, the war.
0: I can't check records, but I don't think he even made it after World War no, II. He d-
1: no, he didn't. No. He, he passed on. So, I, it's one of
0: those things that everybody involved, it kind of stained him yes. a little bit. And it kind of Everybody kind of remembers, I mean, even though they had wonderful careers afterwards, it's still that's the one thing it's, they always remember it
1: because it's gone with the wind. <laughs> that's true, and
0: it's a nostalgia piece. And we we're going to talk about when we next episodes when we get to classics. That somehow I, that's kind of a correlation. Sometimes good movies are not filmed at the present time, right? So, and gone with the wind filmed <laughs> in the 1930s actually is talking about the 1860s, yes, and uh. We have a little bit timid. uh We're about ready to go. But mm-hmm. before we leave, I want to do something that we have. We talk about a minute because we're filming in Minnesota. Yeah. And we talk about well, recording Minnesota. So I want to give a Minnesota link of anything we talked about in our conversations. Okay. So let's talk about, Can we talked about a little bit of Essie Hinton, right? Yes. And Francis Fort Coppola. I have a good link with St. Paul.
1: You'd... Oh, yes, you do. And right. I know where you're going to go with this. Yeah, I know. We're thinking like, go. Oh, want to say it? Uh, um, Based on S.E. Hinton book? S.E. Hinton book with Emilio Estevez. That was then. This, is, this now. is now. Yes. it was filmed here filmed in St. Filmed right
0: here in St. Paul. Yeah. It stars uh, Emilio Estevez, uh, Craig Schaefer, and it has Morgan Freeman. A yes. A very, very young. One of, yeah. One of it the, is forties. Oh, more. my
1: God. I think he was just um, off of uh, um, Electric the Electric Com- Company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Top, ta- up, top, ta- yeah. He um, this is before he did for love of chair.
0: If you can check it out, you can find it. It's like one of those
1: classic stories. Yes, of
0: ma- growing up and maturity. Of as they hit that was then.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a sleeper. All right, thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Yeah. Oh.
0: can't come back, your broken heart is gonna bleed your soul, and I can't save you, I can't save you from what
1: you know, and I can't save you from what you need,
0: and I can't save you from what you